You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Hello, this is Justin Dieter. Unfortunately, the sermon audio from this Sunday did not record properly, so we decided to uh, give an opportunity to re-record the sermon here in my my office. And so, uh, this is not live. This is, this is me talking into a microphone. But wanted to uh, provide an opportunity for those who weren't there and who might be interested to. Uh, get this passage from James four, verse one through 12. And so let me read the scripture for us. And then uh, I will re-preach the sermon here uh, for you uh, and on this recording. So here's what James chapter four, verse one through 12 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So this is the passage from James chapter 4, verse 1 through 12. You know, our sin has unleashed deadly effects upon our world, but none perhaps more evident than the unceasing conflict we humans have between one another. Everywhere we look, people seem to be fighting. Two political leaders in two political countries criticize each other and wage war against each other. Two politicians from two different political parties attack each other over their respective visions for their country. Two celebrities attack each other in a Twitter storm as bitter rivals. Two mothers attack each other on Facebook over the differing parenting philosophies they have. Two co-workers squabble over who's responsible for what work in the office. A mom argues with her children. A husband argues with his wife. You know, all across human society, we see the, the raging wars of personal conflict. Our sin has unleashed a war zone as we quarrel and fight amongst each other. You know, sin is divisive and its quarrelsome spirit exposes itself often in the most intimate relationships that, that we possess. So in James chapter four, verse one through 12, we see James describe the source of this conflict. Believe it or not, conflict can happen even among God's people. And though we are redeemed sinners, we are still sinners nonetheless. And the work of God's sanctifying grace has yet to be completed in our lives. So thus, even within the church, 
brothers and sisters in Christ can quickly be at each other's throats. Squabbles, conflict, anger, division, and vindictiveness. These are common challenges of living together in covenant community as a church. In fact, I I believe that the more faithful we are to being the sort of community that invests and cares for one another, the bigger risk of this potential temptation. A church that's going through the motions of attendance while cloaked in anonymity will most likely have little interpersonal conflict. However, a church that is committed to living with authenticity and vulnerability and gospel community, you know, we will be more readily available to identify each other's weaknesses because we know one another. And this intimacy of one another can be used by God to to deepen our love for one another as we are committed to serve and to care and disciple one another. But it, it can also provide an opportunity for disagreement and frustration and conflict. So regardless of the type of conflict uh, that you face with others, whether it's with your family, whether it's in your church, whether it's with your workplace, James chapter four has a lot to teach us about conflict, about our hearts, about the gospel. So in some human conflict originates from an idolatrous heart with waging desires and resolution begins by humble brokenness leading to reconciliation to God in Christ. So the first thing I want to draw out from us for uh, for this passage here is point number one, the origins of conflict or the idolatrous heart. And we see this particularly in verse one through five. Human conflict originates in the heart. It escalates through competing desires there, and it ultimately desecrates our spiritual lives. That as we look at the beginning of James chapter four, we see the origins of all conflict begin with the heart. James opens the passage with a question and he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And James answers his own question with the question. And he says, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You know, as James presses on his reasoning throughout this passage, we learn an essential truth about ourselves, that our hearts are a war zone of desires. You know, the most intense of human conflicts escalate into war. And that word alone, war, conjures up all sorts of images of blood and battle and carnage. But yet, as James explains, the source of human conflict, he shows us that our hearts are a war zone. Internally, in your heart and in my heart, there is a a violent conflict between differing desires in our hearts that are all wrestling for control over the seat of our hearts. You see, when we begin to find ourselves engrossed in conflict, our instinct is to start looking externally to other people, to other circumstances. Like our parents, Adam and Eve, we are quick to look for someone to blame. And as we boil with anger and hate, we look beyond ourselves for the cause of our anger. And so we blame our work environment, our coworkers, our spouse, our children. And, you know, we justify ourselves and we think things like, well, you know, if my my coworkers weren't such imbeciles, then I wouldn't be so angry all the time. Or, you know, if my children would only listen to me and do what I say, then then I wouldn't be lashing out at them in frustration. You see, when we find ourselves in conflict with someone, we are quick to blame and to shift that blame 
And yet James exposes these blame shifting attempts as ultimately folly. And here's the important reality James shows us that conflict begins internally, not externally. The Christian faith has a particular trajectory to it. Every religion and worldly philosophy, they, they seek to work through the external to get to the internal. The Christian faith uh, works in the complete opposite direction. It begins with the internal and moves to the external. So whenever conflict or sin emerges in our lives together, we must not say, look, look at how she's causing me to respond. But, but rather we should ask ourselves the question, what, what is going on in my heart that is causing me to respond this way? After all, the external stressors and heat that comes into your life, they don't necessarily force you to respond sinfully. For example, you can have two people sitting in rush hour traffic and one man is in a hurry, eager to get home from a stressful day at work and, and to rest. And as he is sitting in the rush hour traffic, he keeps boiling with anger. He's muttering curses towards the other drivers and he's filled with, with road rage. Another driver sits in the same traffic, but she's calm and collected. She enjoys the time of solitude in her car as she listens to a good podcast and as she waits in bumper-to-bumper traffic. These two people, they're sitting in the same traffic, the same external circumstances, but yet one has responded to that circumstance with sin and the other has not. You see, your circumstances don't cause you to sin, but it's the waging wars of desires in your heart that lead you to respond in sinful ways. And as we try to grapple with what James teaches us here, we have to pause for a moment and look at the broader biblical teaching about the human heart. What is it that controls a person? What influences you to make the decisions you make and the actions that you take? The biblical answer to those questions is different than the way most our day believe and would answer those questions. You see, many today believe that human beings are primarily intellectual. In this view, human beings are more like a neutral computer, that if we provide the right data and we use our rational faculties, we will make the logical right decision. Others who adopt an evolutionary paradigm for understanding the world see human beings as primarily instinctual. We are a slave to our biology and our biochemical processes. Human beings are animals with urges, after all. And though we have the capability of reasoning, our decisions are made primarily by our instinctual and biological impulses. However, the biblical vision of the human being isn't intellectual, nor is it instinctual, but rather it is affectional, affectional, that it is the loves of our heart that direct and guide the decisions we make. In other words, we do and act in response to what we most deeply love. In other words, human beings choose to do what they most desire to do. We operate in accordance with our loves. As Proverbs 4 verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. You see, the loves of the heart are like a type of gravity that leads us to their appointed ends. 
And the telos of our loves are like the undertow of the ocean, guiding and directing our lives, pulling us along. And as Augustine himself said, my weight is my love wherever I am carried. My love is carrying me. You see, most people are unconscious, unaware of how the loves and desires of their heart shape their lives. But as we've seen already in James, our hearts direct our actions. This principle has huge implications for the Christian life. But as we look here at James 4, we see a shocking reality about the loves of our heart. And the reality is that our conflict with one another begins with these conflicting desires in the heart. Isn't that what James is saying here in verse 1? What causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You know, if we respond on the basis of what we most deeply love, then the reason for conflict emerges between two hearts that are internally conflicted. Look at verse 2 of this passage here. Where James says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, fights, conflict, and murder originate in our hearts when we see another person preventing us from getting what we most deeply desire. That when other people are preventing you from receiving what you most deeply love and cherish, then you respond sinfully to them by being aggressive towards them. James tells us that we do not have because we do not ask. However, much of our desires have wrong motives. We ask wrongly because what we really most desire isn't what's pleasing to the Lord, but rather it's motivated by selfishness and personal ambition. And most of the time, what we most deeply love isn't that which is pleasing to God, But that which is carnal and sinful, that as Christians, we have been given a new heart in Christ. And by the grace of God, he has purified our hearts and filled our hearts with love to Christ. However, now this war with the old man and old woman in our hearts can be even more vicious because we have a desire to do what is right, a desire to serve Christ and a desire to live for his glory. However, we also still have the remnants of our old sinful nature that desires to do what is wrong, a desire to serve self, a desire to live for our glory. These competing desires and loves wrestle for the throne in our hearts and in our struggle and failure, often sinful passions and loves begin to take their seat upon the throne of our heart, thus knocking Christ away from his rightful place in your heart. This means that our conflict with one another is ultimately not about one another. Instead, human conflict originates from the war zone battleground of our hearts as sinful desires displace Christ from our hearts. Thus, your problem in conflict isn't other people or your situation. Your problem is the idolatry of your own heart. When we find ourselves embroiled in conflict, Our first response should be to look within and with the Spirit's help, uncover the deeper spiritual problems that we have. You see, we must be reconciled to God. We must place him back upon his throne. 
our primary problem is spiritual adultery. And in verse four, James uses that offensive word of adultery to describe our hearts. He says, you adulterous people, this sort of prophetic rebuke resembles the one commonly given to Old Testament Israel, right? When the people of Israel got seduced by idols, they betrayed their God who loved them or phony gods made of wood and stone. You know, when competing passions wage war for control over our hearts, it's a war of idols. That When we knock Christ off of his throne to to lift up these idolatrous desires in his place, we make ourselves to be enemies of God. However, when it comes to the Christian life, we, we cannot have split allegiances. We are either devoted to Christ or dedicated to the world. We love Christ or love the world. And so James stresses this point when he asks, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And all our foolish attempts to make Christianity cool and hip and relevant, we can't forget that the gospel polarizes. Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. Either we love God and we're loyal and devoted to him and to his kingdom, or we are spiritual adulterers in bed with the desires of the world. And with the waging passions and desires in our heart displace Christ as our rightful God and King, then we make ourselves to be enemies of this God. We become his adversaries. And by our idolatry and adultery, we have chosen our side. You see, the battle for spiritual faithfulness to Christ begins in our hearts. Who is sitting on the throne of your heart? To whom do your allegiances lie? Are you fraternizing with the devilish desires of your flesh or are you loyal and faithful to your husband and head, the Lord Jesus Christ? In case we miss the seriousness of our split loyalties to God, James emphasizes the Old Testament refrain that our God is a jealous God. In Exodus 20 verse 5 Scriptures say you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4, 24 says the same thing. For the Lord, your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God is a consuming fire who zealously defends and protects the honor of his name. And he will not tolerate the cheapening and devaluing of his glorious name. So when we hear the word jealousy, we usually think of it exclusively in a human sense. Jealousy for us is always sinful because we are creatures and we are low. However, God is the most infinite and splendorous of all beings. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He is eternal, holy, perfect, and pure. And there is no good higher than God himself. Thus, for God to be God, he must passionately defend the good, which means he is jealous. He defends the honor of his own name, and God deserves all the glory, honor, and praise, and it is our mandate as his creatures that we give it to him. However, a heart that's divided and split in its allegiance to God dishonors him. 
Whenever we choose our warring passions over Christ himself, we sin and commit spiritual adultery. We throw our lot again and again with friendship with the world. And as Galatians 6, 7 reminds us, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. What we've sown is spiritual adultery, and what we reap is his condemnation. Indeed, all of humanity is under God's just condemnation for sin, for we have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. However, even with our idolatrous and adulterous hearts, James gives us some really good news in verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Even in our rebellion, and while we were enemies of God, God gives grace to his rebellious human creatures. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why Christ has come, that though our hearts wage war and violent conflict against God and his glory, Christ has come to pay the penalty of our sin. He took on our just punishment and bore the wrath of God for us, so that by the blood of Christ, we who were his enemies can be made his friends through faith. You see, Jesus not only deals with the penalty of sin that we deserve, but but he also stretches down into the depths of our heart and he slays the, the warring passions within us and he opens our eyes, our ears, our hearts so that we can recognize him as Lord and King over our lives. And so Jesus is displacing the lesser loves of our hearts with his infinite and perfect love. So the origin of all conflict begins in the heart. And at its core, our fundamental problem is spiritual idolatry. We can now then think about God's grace and how we are to respond to the gospel of grace. And so we can consider now how God brings the resolution of the conflict in a reconciled heart. And that's the second point the resolution of conflict, the reconciled heart. And we see this in verse 7 through 12 of James 4. So conflict originates in our hearts, and only the gospel can deal with the depths of our heart and change what we most deeply love. And as we consider this God who gives more grace, we must consider how we must respond to God's grace. Indeed, our response to this God of grace fuels and changes our response to other people. To those who are proud, God opposes them. However, those who are humble, God gives them grace. Thus, as we consider our proper response to our God of grace, our hearts must respond in humble submission to God. And James gives us a series of of commands here in verse 7 through 10 that elaborate on this principle in terms of our response to this God of grace. So let's briefly consider each of these phrases here that he mentions. One of the first ones is he says that we must submit to God. That when we put our faith in Christ, we humbly recognize God's authority over our lives. Those idols that we worshiped and placed upon the throne of our hearts no longer wield power over us. Instead, in humility, we recognize the foolishness of our ways and confess Christ as our God and King. 
It means we no longer recognize our own thoughts, ideas, or emotions as authoritative, but we acknowledge Christ as the sovereign Lord over our lives. We bend our knee. We serve him. We love him exclusively. James also tells us that we must resist the devil. As we humbly submit to Christ, as we make him our Lord, then we respond by resisting the schemes of the devil. Though Christ has become our Lord, the warring passions of the old man and woman, they still remain this side of heaven. Occasionally, we will be tempted to succumb to the temptation of demons, to place them again on the throne of our hearts. However, as we resist this temptation with the help of God's spirit, the temptations will lessen. As we resist the devil, he will flee from us, recognizing that his former ways of tempting us no longer prove effective. A humble heart that's committed to living with Christ as Lord will be mindful of the devil's schemes and resist his temptation. James also tells us that we must draw near to God, that a humble heart which has received God's grace, will long to draw near to God. The Christian life is one of hungering and yearning for righteousness. And as we live in the comfort of God's grace, then then we long to know Jesus more deeply, more intimately, more personally. So we pursue him and his word. We long to know his heart and his mind. We seek him. And James gives us the sweet comfort. That as we intensely pursue Christ, he will draw near to us. And what a wonderful promise this is that God is eager to take you to deeper levels of intimacy and knowledge of him if you will but seek him. As Deuteronomy 4 29 tells us, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. James also tells us that we must cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. A humble heart that has received God's amazing grace knows that sin lingers and remains, and we have yet to be made perfect. Thus, the Christian life is one of cleansing our hands and purifying our hearts. Though Christ has been made the king of our heart, there are areas of our lives that have yet to be submitted to his rule. You see, the Christian life is one of repentance, one of constant, daily, hourly turning from sin and living for Christ. And the waging passions in our hearts should be increasingly subdued as the Spirit matures us and sanctifies us. James also tells us that we must grieve our sin. A humble heart grieves sin. We fully recognize that that we are wretched And so we weep and mourn over our rebellion. We see our sin as God sees our sins, that we are offended by our sin as God is. And as we press into the mind of Christ, we come to detest our sin with greater sorrow and grieve over its influence on our lives. Though God's grace saves us from our sins, we shouldn't live our Christian lives with a glib demeanor or a lackadaisical mood toward our sin. But rather than tolerating sin in our lives, we should mourn it. James says, so let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That our sin ought to weigh heavy upon our hearts. And when it does, then we look to Jesus 
We remind ourselves of the promises of the gospel and we look to Christ afresh for his sanctifying grace to help us defeat the sinful passions that lurk beneath our heart. James also tells us that God exalts the humble. In James' descriptions here, we see this important principle in understanding our response to this God of grace, that we must humble ourselves before the Lord and submit to Christ as our Lord. And when we do that, we give him the throne of our heart. The good news then is that the Lord exalts the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is the pattern of Christ's kingdom. That those who are puffed up with pride and self-sufficiency and self-confidence, they will find themselves cast down and forcibly humbled at the end of the age at the last judgment. However, those who humble themselves now, who recognize their sin and lowliness and look to Christ and faith and desperation, they will, they will find themselves exalted on that last day in resurrected life. So now that James has helped us, Understand the ultimate source of conflict is our idolatrous heart filled with waging warring desires in our heart. And after considering how the grace of God changes our hearts and our humble response to God's grace, we now return to the interpersonal relationship with others. And this is an important dynamic that you need to know. But before your your horizontal relationships with other people can be reconciled, you must first have your vertical relationship with God reconciled. It is only when you have peace with God that you can begin to have peace with others. Because only the God of peace can, can deal with the, the conflict and hostility and the idolatry in your heart. And once God has dealt with your heart, and once Christ is affixed firmly upon his throne, only then can you learn to live in peace with others. In verse 11 through 12, James gives some practical insights and reminders into why we must not speak evil against one another and why we must not judge each other's souls. So he tells us to not speak evil. Speaking evil of others is a result of boasting, jealousy, self-centered desires, and pride that James has been warning against. Once you recognize the warring conflict of passions and desires in your own heart, you will approach others with humility and lowliness. You don't see yourself as better than anyone or more deserving than anyone, but rather you will seek to serve others as you have been served by Christ Jesus himself. He also warns not to judge the soul. And ultimately, James warned against judging the soul of your brother or sister because we can't, we can't see what is going on in the hearts of others. After all, we have a hard enough time understanding the competing and warring desires in our own heart, let alone what's going in the heart of our brother and sister. Only, only the Lord can see into the heart. Only the Lord can judge the heart ultimately. Thus, we have to be very careful when we assign motives to people's actions and when we make spiritual judgments upon a person standing before God, that if we judge our brother in this sort of way, then, then we set ourselves as judge above the law. In other words, we, we make ourselves out to be God. And as James reiterates, there is only one lawgiver and one judge, and it's not you and it's not me. Only God is able to save or destroy. Only God can discern what's going on in an individual's heart. So thus, we cannot judge 
our neighbor. And this is difficult in terms of our relationship with one another, particularly in the church, because James isn't discounting the place for what the Anabaptists used to call fraternal admonition. The idea that in the community of the church, we should correct each other where there is sin. However, we have to be cautious of assuming that we know what is going on in people's hearts. And we should lovingly encourage each other in godliness and correct each other when necessary. But we have to be mindful of the temptation we have to judge each other's hearts. James cautions us against this temptation. And a heart transformed by God's grace will be painfully aware of one's own sin before we ever consider addressing the sin of another. James has helped us do some hard work in James 4 of examining our own hearts. And so today I ask you, what is, what is going on in your heart? Understand that conflict in your life or sin in your life begins with your heart. That if you are angry, anxious, frustrated, afraid, depressed, then you have to let the spirit probe your heart to show you what, what sort of warring desires in your heart are leading you to respond in sinful ways and in sinful actions. And we must confess those sins. And we must look to the God of grace to renew and to transform your soul. So make sure today that Christ is sitting upon the throne of your heart, that you have not kicked him off to replace him with some sort of idol. But be mindful of your temptation to spiritual idolatry. However, the invitation today for all of us is to go to Christ, the God of grace. Our hearts are desperately wicked. And if you don't know Christ today, and you're listening to this podcast, then hear me carefully. You are an enemy of God. You are either a friend of this world or a friend of God. And in our sin, by our nature, we are rebels against our wonderful, precious God. However, God, by his wonderful love, extends grace to you this day. See your sin, humble yourself, and confess Christ as your Savior and Lord, and let him transform your heart. And as you make yourself low, as you humble yourself before God, Christ will lift you up in the power of his salvation.